Hello everyone, it's Rod here jumping in before we get to the main body of the episode to kind of let you know uh, what this show is about, what you're going to hear. If you can tell from the title of the episode, uh, this is another conversation between me and artist extraordinaire Mark Maddox. Yeah, we recorded this one this past summer, and you might ask yourself, well, if you recorded it this past summer, why haven't you put this out as an episode before now? It's, that's because I have other things going on, folks. I mean, we're producing other shows. People want to do episodes on different movies and different stuff. And we've been recording commentary tracks. We've, we've been busy. We've, honestly, we've got full-time jobs and Troy has two bands and there's just all stuff. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's complicated. But <clears throat> the good news is this is Mark and I having a long conversation and, uh, you might have noticed from past episodes in which Mark and I talk that we occasionally get off track. We occasionally talk about things that are not connected necessarily to the topic at hand. And this is kind of really what our conversations are always like. Whenever we talk, this is how it goes. Whether we're sitting in the same room, riding in the same car, or talking over the phone, conversations range far and wide over a myriad of subjects. And certainly, we cover movies and TV shows and film scores, these are the things that we like to talk about with each other because these are common interests and we really enjoy BSing our way through a conversation about them and talking about what we like and what we don't like. But once again, this that you're about to hear in this episode is something that he and I recorded this summer and we did it in a strange circumstance, I'll have to admit. This is recorded in a car, a moving car that I was driving. We were just sitting and talking about whatever comes to mind. I think we get off on 60s television series. We talk about favorite film composers. We talk about, man, a lot of different stuff. I hope you guys enjoy listening to this as much as I'm kind of dreading listening back to it because Lord only knows what tangents we went off on. But if you're curious, like I say, the reason the audio is kind of weird and the way it is is because this was recorded in a car. And you're going to hear the car beeping, which are actually warnings that this very sophisticated mobile four-wheeled beast is giving me that I'm not exactly in the lane properly. I hate it when cars think they drive better than me. Cars, you do not drive better than me. I drive better than cars. And that's a rant that makes me sound like a lunatic. But nevertheless, you'll hear us talking occasionally about things that are obviously right there in front of us or outside of the car. I'll try to do away with most of the extraneous BS, but there will be the occasional comment that I feel for whatever reason, should probably be left in place just for context, if nothing else. So this is Mark Maddox and me riding in a car, coming back from Chicago, talking about whatever comes to mind. Hope you enjoy. I'll talk to you again at the end. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Ah, necrophilia. Ah, ah, ah. It's a dead issue, man. Don't, don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this? No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, crude. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of. It's unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. 
Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept Little history doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you, you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped from watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was How did you watch movie. this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. with at least the first disc of the uh, oh, yeah. if, if, if a Kube 100 that's very good stuff yeah, it was pretty good I mean I was I, I mean I didn't know what to expect I mean you know this was put on maybe they put people putting on a convention but they pulled out all the stops I mean they had a full-blown extremely extremely good sounding orchestra and they recorded it well and their yes. their, their their musical cues their music picks were really good so um, I'm very happy with the purchase um, and it's it's rare. I mean, I'm assuming. Hold on, I'm gonna eat this donut and then I'll finish talking. <laughs> finish your finish your thought post donut. Mm. Okay. All right. That sounds like a good idea. Mm. Each donut seems to be making you a more pliable and 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 talkative and happy person. So. you're going to let your son starve. Well. <laughs> why don't you, um, why don't you eat that sunny day? Genius in the making here. Uh, yeah, yeah. I want to see something, though. I want to see if this. What, the, which cues? Montero Records. Well, I'm going to see if it's, I mean, this isn't like a bootleg. This is a real deal. No, that's the real thing, man. I mean, but that they're allowed to sell this, and they are. They could. I, they they struck a deal uh, at the time for uh, the rights to the live recording. All right, so that means that we can tell people. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, we can. We we can do this here. Okay. Okay. Look, I'm going to tell you what I what I've only listened to the first disc, Ipakube, and I'm probably tearing his name apart. I think that's right. Probably a, a, a 100, a legacy of monster music. A symphonic concert to celebrate the centennial of film composer Akira Ifukube. Now, uh, Rodney and I both give it a thumbs up from what we've listened to so far, which is the first disc, and I think it's I, I think it's great. They did a great job. Uh, and apparently, you can go to their website Genesis54inc.com. Genesis54inc.com. 
and uh, they probably, if you want to, you probably purchase it from there, I would think. Should be able to. Should be able to. But, um, you know, they do a lot of good stuff on here. They do uh, all these different suites, from, like from Godzilla, King Kong vs. Godzilla, Mothra vs. Godzilla, Ghidra Three-Headed Monster, Godzilla vs. Monster Zero, Destroy All Monsters, Godzilla vs. Gigantera, Mechagodzilla, Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah, God, uh, Godzilla vs. Mothra, that's the 92 film. Yeah. Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla 2, and Godzilla vs. Destroya, which I always really enjoyed that film. So, you know, we give it a thumbs up. I'd say go ahead and, and, and pick it up. If you love uh, music from kaiju films, I, you know, this might be a, really a, a top one in your collection after a very short period of time. It's certainly an excellent, an excellent recording of the of the symphony doing it. It's really amazing stuff. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, well, wait a minute. Which is, uh, if you had to choose, I know you you already have a lot of the yes. the kaiju scores yeah. in the, the original. I'm assuming the original vault recordings, what the stuff that gets released to CD legally and stuff. So what does um, what what would you do? You have a favorite? I mean, a favorite score from from a particular film or you're more of a pick and choose amongst various scores kind of guy well yeah I mean there's a whole bunch of them I love I would probably say the first one I was really crazy about when I really started paying attention to the music was uh, Destroy All Monsters but I would say that just for a, a surprise for most people is how good the soundtrack to Varan the Unbelievable is it's ah. a very very good you got to realize, I mean, there's music that I like to jump around in the house to. There's music I, I want to, you know, just enjoy uh, while I'm driving. And there's music I like doing artwork to. Varan is one of those soundtracks where I can really work at my painting and drawing while it's running. And all the cues are pretty darn good. They're memorable. Um, but there's a bunch of them. Mysterians is a good soundtrack. Uh, uh, Frankenstein Conquers the World's a good soundtrack, or Frankenstein vs. Barricon. Um, there's a bunch of them. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. Several years back, they released um, the actual Japanese soundtrack to King Kong vs. Godzilla, which was long in coming because the American version of the film has terribly put in music from other films. One of them, most notably, uh, The Creature from the Black Lagoon, yeah. the attack music, which I, I guess in a way it sort of works with the scene, but it is not. But we know where it comes from, so it's it's irritating. You know, you want the original music, and I yeah. think the reason they switched the music out is because the edit of the film was a bit different from the Japanese version. And with that happening, uh, they had to find ways to control the music track. Now that's just a guess on my part. There might be a kaiju film expert that says, "Man, you don't know what the hell he's talking about." You well. Don't know. I think that, um, but that's my guess. There's some, uh, that's one thing that really has always bothered me is we've never gotten a really good release of King Kong versus Godzilla, the full-blown Japanese version in this country. And, um, well, what is it that you got your hands on recently that, was it just a suite of, of music from it or? I think it was the soundtrack of the Japanese suite of. Oh, so, oh, so you did, but it was the Japanese release. Yeah, yeah, okay. they put it out, and I, I, I played it, and I was like, "Boy, this is pretty good." I mean, you know, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how many times you've seen the Japanese version of the film, or if you've ever seen it at all. I don't, you know, honestly, I don't think I have seen it at all. There's more of the guys, the two lead guys in the film, that are working for a television show, and. 
and stuff like that, and it's 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 fun to watch that part too. I mean, you know, the film's already kind of light uh, in its tone in so many ways, but yeah. this kind of shows you who those guys are, and I, I think in a way it helps make it more believable the lighter tone of the show. Um, I think we need a, I think we need a DVD at least, or or a Blu-ray if at all possible. Well, now I have to admit I have been uh, I have been rather tempted to just go ahead and check out the Japanese version with or without any kind of subtitling just to see the differences. Yeah. But uh, I haven't I haven't done it yet. So. Right. Well, it would give you two things. It would give you the scenes that are missing. Right. It would throw out the John Beck stuff. And, and a, yeah, it would give me a chance to hear the, the original actual score within the context of the action just to see how it was, how the music was handled, to, you know, differently from one to the other. But Right. Um, I know that you have pieces of music that are better or worse for working to you know, while you're painting. Um, do you just, is there a certain type or, or is it some that, I mean, does it, is it music that energizes you that's better for you or is it, is it, does it need to have tonal differences? Does it need to ebb and flow a little bit or? That's a good, uh, that's a good question. I'll tell you, I'll, I, it might be easier for me to start with what I listen to and maybe that we can find a, an oh, answer okay. in it. A common theme, yeah. Yeah. What's that? Nuclear meltdown. Oh uh, yeah, that's that's the that's Rod drifting over the line and trying desperately to kill people. The car that's, yelling yeah. at him. Yeah. So, so uh, some of the uh, some of the soundtracks I really really love listening to, and 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 music from film is uh, definitely John Barry. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. The John Barry music. Uh, the um, he did some. Uh, he did some discs where he got a, a you know an orchestra together. Like there was one called Moviola that he did that I've played to death. I, I love listening to it. Um, music from films like uh, Last of the Mohicans. Uh, that's the, a, the that's Michael a, Mann. The Michael Mann film. That's a yeah. great one to listen to. Um, uh, the, uh, the the really great um, TV movie uh, Gettysburg. Okay. Uh, that's a great one. I'm, the names of the guys are kind of escaping me who did them. I think I want to say um, one of the guys uh, was, was somehow connected between both of those. I, that's why I listened to both of them quite a bit. Um, soundtrack to Gladiator. Okay. Hans Zimmer. That's a great yeah, Hans Zimmer. That's a great one to listen to. The, uh, I mean, so those those strike me just in the cues that I'm remembering anyway as being, um, I wouldn't say up-tempo, but at least kind of energetic, kind of muscular scores, as I remember them. Yeah, they've got a they've got a presence and a weight to them, and the themes are, you know, I mean, for lack of a better term, they're, they're catchy tunes. I mean, they're, you sort of can, you know, think about them later. It's not mood music or anything. Yeah. Like, Hans Zimmer kind of changed, like, when he did the... Uh, Batman and Superman soundtracks he was working on. It's almost like a rolling piece of music. It's not. Yeah, it's like a it's like a bed throughout the entire running time. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not ecstatic about that too much. I mean, I I I think they work within the context of the film, but as a soundtrack, I find myself being pretty uh, pretty bored with them in comparison. I mean, Gladiator really is a great soundtrack. I mean, that thing has got presence to it, and it. It gets you. It gets you. It gets your heart rate going. 
about you. I want to know, going back the other direction, what are some of your favorite soundtracks? Well, I'm a, I'm a big Jerry Goldsmith fan. Oh, he's my favorite. He's actually he actually is my favorite. But and yeah. uh, I have a, one of the things that really drew me to, to Jerry Goldsmith almost immediately was the work he did for the first, the original Planet of the Apes film. Yeah. And what was amazing about it is that there's a there's an amazing combination of different types of music that he folds all within one big score. There's some beautiful, energetic, uh, one would say muscular kind of symphonic stuff. And then there's bizarre atonal things, uh, odd pieces of equipment being used to generate percussion. And there's all these different types of sounds that he uses and he blends it all together. And it was very easy to tell having watched the movie so many times for so many years when I finally got my hands on the, the CD soundtrack for, you know, uh, I'm assuming it's, I, I don't have the disc at hand, but it's essentially the entire thing. The, uh, the pieces that, um, it's very easy to know where the pieces go because he gave almost each sequence in the film a different feel because it's almost as if it were recorded by a different set of musicians. And in some cases I think it was, but that's one that really stood out to me, not just because I love the film, but because it was so easy to tell that there were very different types of music all being used within the same movie. And then, uh, then of course, you discover things like how, you know, like, I mean, he, he won the Oscar for The Omen, and that's just an amazing score. And, of course, yeah. unique at the time for doing something that was just mesmerizing, the use of uh, the Gregor, you know, the use of that cha- those chants and the uh, the really ominous feel that he gives the movie. I mean, yeah, that's not It's actually almost scary. It's like one of the only soundtracks I've ever listened to. Where you actually really get creeped out when they start chanting, yes. because he doesn't pull pull punches. Jerry Goldsmith has never pulled punches in his soundtracks, and in uh, in this one, it really is this chanting of evil starting up. And because the Omen, uh, you know, it's uh, it's got a real uh, 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 gosh, for lack of a vicious intent. I mean, people die in those films, and in that first one, they 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 buy it because they're getting in the way. It's sort of like I mean, I make fun of the film films themselves because I'm not a big fan of them. I think they're a little too mean-spirited because it's almost like a mob rub out, but, you know, devil as hitman <laughs> yeah. sort of thing. Uh, but the music, Jerry Goldsmith does not, it does not fail. I mean, when he, when a film's bad and, 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 and Jerry Goldsmith does a soundtrack, there's a good chance it's always the thing you're going to remember best about it. Case in point, soundtrack I absolutely love for a film that's absolutely terrible, The Swarm. I mean, it's, oh, yeah, yeah. it's got great music, it's got punch, it's got weight to it, um, it's very action-y. Uh, Agre- agreed on both counts. It is a terrible film, but that is a great score, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, what what's, what goes on with Jerry is that, um, I mean, even from the old days of, of, of live television and then, and, then these, and then doing Twilight Zone and stuff, one of the pieces that really made me happy as a kid was his monster attack music or in the case in the, actually in reality a giant whale attack music that was used for a lot of monster attacks in his shows after that okay but as you were saying goldsmith scores well i mean uh, with, with jerry goldsmith uh the like the whale attack the music that was used for the first color episode of the show i think it was jonah and the whale was the name of the episode color episode of what Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Oh, okay. And uh, and uh, that that music that he would do, that's just shrieking. 
about you being attacked by a giant creature, and they used it over and over again, especially in episodes where the giant monster grabs the submarine and starts rocking it back and forth, and everybody inside is going back and forth across the control room and throughout the sub. They basically, you know, as you know, tilted the camera one way, and the audience or the uh, actors ran the other way, and it just looked like all hell was breaking loose, but the music was perfect for it. Yeah. There's some woodwinds in there and stuff like that that really just give it presence. He was, the thing about Jerry Goldsmith uh, is that his use of brass and woodwinds and, I mean, he used everything. I mean, you were really, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that the orchestra was very busy. I've actually talked to people that have been in orchestras and what they, what they don't like is, as individuals in an orchestra, they don't like it too much when they're not used. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you, I, I would assume it would be pretty boring to be sitting there with everyone else around you working working to one degree or another, and you're essentially waiting for a cue that's ten minutes in. So. Yeah, because the because the uh, the conductor, the composer, and conductor don't don't lean towards whatever instrument you're playing. Yeah. Um, but 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 I I can, I can imagine that Jerry Goldsmith would be one of them that they would appreciate. Um, so I mean that was my earliest thing of actually really trying to recognize you know music of his uh, you know back in the television days and then he kind of when I really first started paying attention to myself wasn't even in stuff like Planet of the Apes and Pat and I don't think I was as much in the soundtracks at the time uh, I wasn't you know aware that there's this whole love uh, you know the way some people love the Beatles and some people love Frank Sinatra well there's a group out there that loves soundtracks. And uh, he had, um, what was the first soundtrack I think I consciously, oh, I know what it was. It was probably Logan's Run. Oh, yeah. Um, with, with pieces of music that are just straight out action, like You're Renewed and stuff like that, and then the electronics he put in there. And uh, later I went back and started picking up, you know, the route along the way which he had traveled with, you know, movies like Patton and Planet of the Apes and... Torah, 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 and then, and then finally, you know, I was kind of uh, surprised when I actually did find out that he had done Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, but then I'm like, yeah, well, I mean, it's obvious, listen to the music, um, but I've been a fan, and then the year that I really remember him solidly being planted in my head as a force to be, you know, I would say reckoned with, a force to go out and buy his albums was the, within a few months of each other, right, I think right after I I just graduate high school, I can't remember, but the movie The Swarm came out, and I bought the soundtrack, and then the movie Capricorn 1, which I always thought was a very rollicking score, I mean, it really is him at his top notch, and my friend had bought that one, and I bought this one, and we both kind of exchanged cassettes of them, and uh, I mean, it's like Jerry Goldsmith, from then on, I knew who he was, Um, so... I mean, the music in both of those is superb. At least Capricorn One's a better film too. Uh, uh, but there's um, there's uh, hard, hard to not be a better film than The Swarm, quite honestly. Yeah, and I and I remember years later thinking I, I'd like to watch it again and enjoy it. And the only parts I enjoy are the parts where Jerry Goldsmith's doing the music, uh, the uh, couple of the helicopter attack or helicopter scenes at the beginning are kind of interesting, but. It's a, it's it's a, it's it's unbelievable to me that the man that did Towering Inferno that worked on Towering Inferno turned around and produced this, and 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 he did that one, and it's like after that, 
Irwin Allen just ascended. I know I'm kind of jumping ship on subject. No, that, no, go go ahead, go. But go. it's really it's really pretty sad that the guy does Poseidon Adventure and everybody goes nuts for it. And earlier too, he had had other successes. No, I mean his big successes early were all the television stuff, of course. Well, and even before that, is one of his big successes, and it really is a good movie. Is the original Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea film. Yeah. But then he turns around and does, uh, you know, the television shows, which kind of most of them take a Batman route, which I really hate. Uh, eventually they did. I mean, Lost in Space started off as a really good show, a drama, and then got sillier and sillier. Voyage had some episodes that got silly, but then tried to pull back from it some. But I think they were more successful at keeping a keeping, uh, you know... Uh, uh, a, somewhat, a somewhat serious tone. A, but there were still some weird tone. ones. There were still some. Oh, there were a lot of weird ones, yeah. But, but that's that's one of the things about the show that I find kind of endearing, is not just that I, I like most... I like the cast a lot a lot of the TV show, but yeah. it's that uh, from episode to episode, you're never really sure if you're going to get something that's got deadly serious, nearly a military kind of storyline, yeah. or if you're going to get some kind of bizarre as hell science fiction thing that really kind of comes out of left field at times Mon- yeah. monsters and mummies and werewolves and god knows what you know yeah ghost u-boat commanders and things you know i mean i'm a fan of monsters i like seeing an episode where there's a monster in it not as crazy about it when it's stock footage from another film but i love the fact that they had these you know, these submarine models uh in a in a large tank out there in hollywood and they get a guy in a in a in a in a uh a decorated frogman suit or something with fins on it and, and uh, scales and everything to grab the sub and be, you know, rocking it back and forth. And it's like, you know, really think about it for television. The, the, the idea, the execution is about as good as it could have been for that point. But the, um, but the, but, but to, you know, you're really having a giant thing happen on a television show. You well, know. well, I thought it was really, really interesting when I first started watching, because I never saw Boys to the Bottom of the Sea, when it was, uh, you know, being broadcast in reruns when I was a kid or anything like that. So when I finally started catching up with it, I'm catching up with it on DVD, and what I was really impressed with, what, well, there was a lot of things I was impressed with, but one of the things I was impressed with was the, uh, the desire to keep things ratcheted, to, to, not, to not feel padded, to not feel like you're watching something that's kind of half-assed. The, yeah. uh, there's a, I mean, yeah, there's a, there's an unreality to it, but what made it even cooler for me is was as I continued to watch episodes, I began to realize that the show was set in the future. The uh, occasionally, not often, but occasionally, an episode will start out making sure that you know that this is taking place in 1980, yeah. and this is a, and this is a show being shown on television for the first time in 1969. You know. And I think that's kind of cool because they're they're kind of hedging their bets in a way by having some things that... Yeah, it was gone by 69. It was more like, I think it was 65 to 60. Okay. Well, they're, they're, or 68, maybe. I could, I could be wrong. But. They're, they're, they're clearly hedging their bets on what they can get away with and make it believable by saying, oh, well, this is, you know, 11, 12, 15 years in the future, whatever, which is cool. That, that I like that a lot. But I had no idea until I started watching the show on those DVDs that it was even a, a bit of a science fiction show. Yeah. I thought, you know, maybe it was just kind of what the movie had been, which was this is a really advanced nuclear sub. Yeah. Voyage to the bottom of the sea. Starring Richard Basehart. David Hedison. 
voyage to the bottom of the sea. Um, yeah, yeah, and and uh, and I I'd listened to uh, David Hedison speak about the show, and he I think he nailed it. I think he was right. Irwin Allen always wanted the show to be very grim, like the situations were very grim, and he didn't want to let up off of it, which is so ironic because they ended up some of those shows, especially Lost in Space, ended up getting so silly, like with Planet people and a carrot man and, 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 and space hippies and all that kind of stuff, which to me, I'm sorry, you know, I know everybody in the world, some people cut Lost in Space slack, some people cut the Batman TV series slack, I don't like it when you could have made something dramatic and you went for something that was stupid, I don't mean funny, I mean it was stupid, and, yeah, and, I, agree. I, and I, I really, I mean, you know, for the same same effort, you could have made a good, a good drama, because that's what the show was originally sold to us as. You know, and I think that the early episodes of Lost in Space were worthy of, uh, you know, the wonderful world of Disney in a lot of ways. They had that kind of money put into them and a fine cast of, of people who could really act. And uh, they had a warmth and a drama that fit in somewhere between, you know, uh, a, a, a Disney drama and uh, Andy Griffith in terms of like relationships between parents and kids and everything. So, uh, you know, they just. They just took it and they, they they turned they turned it in the wrong direction. I mean, yeah, they they turned it into a, uh, they turned it into a kid show, something that's essentially some much more akin to what should be shown on a Saturday morning at that time. You know, and, and I have run into people that say, well, you know, I don't mind the fact that it was uh, a tongue in cheek and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's fine. I'm, I mean, I'll even watch episodes that are that, that of, of the kind I'm describing right now, especially yeah. with the Blu-ray set. You want to see what that stuff looks like with the modern cleanup and crystal clear and all that kind of stuff. But I'm not going to sit there and agree with you that, uh, that, that those episodes are great. They're not, they're, 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 to me, they're almost a travesty. And there are a few episodes of Voyage that does that too. I mean, the one that, that Voyage did have a few, uh, I guess metaphysical is the right word when you have something that's not science based, that is supposed to be a spirit related or yeah, some magical, kind of, some kind of supernatural element. Yeah. Well, one of them was, and I actually liked this one. I actually liked this one, but I was kind of surprised that in the end it really turned out to be that it was, well, basically a ghost story, which was the two episodes with the U-boat commander. Yeah. Um, the guy, I forget the actor's name, he was very prominent back then in 60s TV, but he was the guy that played Professor Crater in the Man Trap episode of Star Trek, and he was on a ton of television shows when we were kids. Um, but I actually liked him. I mean, he was like trying to force Admiral uh, Nelson to kill Captain Crane so that he could, I think, take over his body or something. It was, there was a reason yeah, for it. Yeah, that was, that's, that, that was the plot of that first one, yeah. But at the end of the show, he walks off. He doesn't get what he wants, and he walks off. And I said, no, there was no alien presence or anything. And I had to kind of go, hmm. I, I was like, hmm, really, a ghost, a real ghost on a on the CV one. This has pretty much been a science fiction and a spy show. Well, they did it, and I still have to say that I thought it was kind of neat. Um, but the episode with the leprechaun or the pirate or whatever, I'm like, no. Leprechaun? I haven't seen that one yet. I think Holy there shit. is. I think it's a leprechaun. I think ultimately in the end it turns out to be a full-blown like leprechaun. Oh, my God. You've okay. seen the character actor before. And it's like, you know, no, I'm not following you guys. And, and I'm trying to remember some of the silliest things on Voyage. Uh, but... Well, and at that time, you know, we're talking about the 60s. So we're talking about a time when standards and practices were really tight. And where there were only a certain range of stories that were that you were going to be allowed to to play any variations off of. So I can only imagine, especially trying to produce what damn near 
somewhere between 25 and 30 episodes a year. Yeah. Man, you're you're sometimes you're hunting for a plot line or a story of some of some type that's, you know, anything different, anything that might be perceived as something different, anything at all. And sometimes you know you sometimes you reach for the candy, and sometimes you reach for whatever's at the bottom of the garbage can. It's just all all whatever's there. You got to have something right now, now, now. You know. Well, I think what was it? Star Trek was twenty four episodes a season. Is that right? Uh, it it varies. There were um, twenty. No, no, there were more than twenty four in the first season. I and I for the life of me can't remember the count on the second and third. I want to say that was like almost the average. I could be wrong, but so yeah, that's what the, what's what the, probably the other shows were close to that number too. Um, but yeah, I mean, so there's things about that show that I really love, and there's things about it I don't love. I mean, I love all the equipment, the sea view, the flying flying sub is just magnificent, the diving bell, the guys out there in the scuba suits the monsters are, are a lot of fun they're pretty straightforward monsters if you got a monster on there if he's an intelligent one his his purpose is to take over the world or or, or, or whatever and if if they're dumb like the the, the white the pure white gorilla uh the albino okay. gorilla um it's, it's just more of a problem with a with a rotten scientist who's using the gorilla for his own nefarious purposes but and has somehow lost view of what he should be doing. Yeah, well, I mean, this is like, you know, there's always... They had a lot of guys come on the show. Somehow, Admiral Nelson or Captain Crane would recognize him and go, Oh, I don't like that guy. And we, we had a run-in back in yeah. whatever at the universe. But something like that. And uh, But then, you know, there was one that I was watching the other day. I didn't get to finish it. I thought, what was it called? The, the Monster from Inner Space or the Creature from the Inner Space. Or like, but... But basically, there's this guy that believes there's a creature out there in the ocean, and he's got some kind of a special sounding device that will call it, and it comes as soon. And they're at the edge of the shore of this little island, and with a camera crew, he turns it on. Man, within about a minute, this monster comes up out of the out of the ocean and kills his camera crew and and everything. <laughs> and so now he's obsessed. And it was uh, Hugh Marlowe from. Uh, Dave Yerson's still in, and Earth versus the Flying Saucers. So essentially, it's a variation on Moby Dick. Yeah, they did a lot of that. I think a lot of TV shows did that. And yeah. um, as a matter of fact, because they did two Moby Dick type shows with guys, well, especially the first one, there was a black and white version of a whale episode that was, I think it was called, uh, I think it was called The Ghost of Moby Dick. And it literally was. Oh a good yeah, yeah, guy you're chasing right. Him. And it I was a good episode. They, they had Moby Dick actually in the title of one. Yeah. Yeah, and and it was that was actually a pretty good episode. I mean, it was a black and white episode. Um, and then right after that, they the next season they did Jonah and the Whale. I will say this too: the whale special effects for a TV show. I'm looking at it going, you know, I know it's probably just like a large puppet under the water, but yeah. there's something about putting miniatures and guys in suits, of, you know, monster suits. And even that whale puppet and putting it in the water, and it somehow grace, it makes it more graceful. Well, it also gives it more. I don't know. There's, it gives it an odd, more oddly, a more a more gravitas. It makes it seems more seem more real and give it kind of shape and form. I mean, because it is a real object. Of course, we're not talking about sure. we're not talking about something that's just some kind of piece of animation. But at the same time, it's there's you're you're right. There's a I think that's why I'm getting such a kick out of just slowly watching all of the episodes of Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Because, like I say, if there's no nostalgia feel for me with the show. I didn't see it as a kid. So, for me, it's pure, purely a 
an enjoyment of television storytelling from that period of time. And I and, and also a lot of it is the, the types of stories they're telling. I mean, I'm a science fiction and horror fan, so you know, this, the show often skews in that direction, and that's something I enjoy. But there's a there's a there's a tone and a feel to it that I, I, I like. I say it can't be nostalgia, but there's something about that period of, of television that I enjoy. There are all those there are all the drawbacks to television from from that period that are there. You know, every single show is its own little capsule thing, and all those episodes could be watched in whatever random order you decided to put them on television, which is, you know, kind of bad in a way, but also kind of good because it allows you to dip in and dip out and play around, and if there's something that you know you specifically want to see and you're not, you're not there yet, it's not going to destroy some continuity thing to just jump ahead and watch the episode with the werewolf in it or whatever. Yeah. But the, the, the things I enjoy about it, I think, are... The things that I'm just describing right there are the kind of things that would make a modern audience if you tried to introduce this show to someone who's been weaned on television for about the past 20 years where, uh, you know, solid continuity and, uh, you know, episode-by-episode uh, episode growth has been built into the shows where they're telling, you know, longer arc stories. I think that, you know, it might be a bit of a jolt to run across something that um, is so episodic, that is so... You know, each each episode is its own self-contained little you know little mini film to a degree. Yeah. I mean, maybe not. Maybe I mean I know that there are a bazillion television shows that I don't watch that are essentially like police procedurals and things like that that are, for lack of a better word, you know, single solitary episodes with, you know, when the and the continuing growth that we would see in a modern day TV series that I'm thinking about is just within character changes over time you know there's not some large overarching story it's just more along the lines of it being an episodic thing you know like I'm pretty sure that all the um, um, law and order shows and the various things of that type I'm pretty sure there's no season long over overarching story going on but I do think that uh, it, I do think I'm glad that television has changed from the you know the simple episodic each each individual episode is its own you know little bottle story to something that allows people to open up and do you know twelve story you know twelve episode arcs or you know five year arcs or whatever it may be. But part of the reason I like going back to these older shows is because of the fact that they're so you know single solitary episodes that I can watch one you know and a month later watch another. And I don't have to worry about going, oh, yeah, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where do we leave off? It's where? been a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's been a while. I where, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, and they'll even do this in shows now, too, where you've got a, 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 a story arc, but it does not happen from episode to episode. You'll have one story at the beginning of the season, and then and then all of a sudden you, you hear nothing about you know, the villain that escaped, and then five episodes later he's back. And then they do, you know, then he's gone again because he got yeah, away. Very they true. Fi- they finally get to a point where at the end, the, the, maybe the big season finale is, you know, the good guys taking out the bad guys that we've been seeing off and on during a season or two. Or hell, maybe even through an entire series. But Well, since we're talking about Irwin Allen stuff, and especially Irwin Allen television, um, one show that I've enjoyed, I haven't finished watching all of it, but I, I do get a kick out of the... Uh, the uh, Irwin Allen uh, let's recycle old movie footage that I already have yeah. television show called The Time Tunnel. Yeah. And uh, I know that, I don't think you're much of a fan of Time Tunnel. Did you not see it as a kid? I didn't see it as a kid. And when I finally did see it, I just saw a guy go into a room 
open a door and go and get canisters of film and then bring it out and then figure out how to put an episode around it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so exa- exa- exactly. I mean, that I love the fair. cast. I think the people were good. I think that, uh, you know, Whit Bissell and Lee Merriweather and, and uh, the guy, the main the main heroes. Uh, Darren. Darren. Uh, Darren uh, uh, what was his, uh, I, I can't remember, is it Bobby Darren? No. Bob, no, not Bobby Darren. That's uh, not right. James That's Darren. Right. James Darren. James no, Darren. God, me, and yeah. I forgot the other guy's name. But like I said, I never really watched the show. I, I saw it. I saw a few episodes, and I saw it when I was an adult. And I had already seen that thing that came later, that Time Travelers movie, that was a, a one shot. Oh, the Rod Serling, the Rod Serling yeah, story. Yeah, and it had Richard Basehart in it and everything. And I think I, re- I think I remember liking that more. But but there was that, and then unfortunately for me. Once Irwin Allen got educated in how to run a film or a television show on the ground, he got faster at it. And that includes that show. And there's some people I know who would disagree with me. And I could I could be swayed maybe with that one because I don't... I just remember kind of watching it and not being excited. Uh, with Land of the Giants, I remember... I remember as a little boy. I remember the night that I saw we had come back from Europe and had lived in Europe and had never really seen color television. One of the first things I saw was an ad on television at my uncle's house, and it was this guy in this red flight suit, jumpsuit kind of looking thing, being grabbed with a pair of pliers by this giant. I freaked. I'm like, yeah, this looks good. Well, in theory, it looks good in the first episode. And then you watch the episodes, and you go, oh, my God, Land of the Fucking Giants. God. Well, the first... But the first few episodes were okay, but they very quickly descended into Lost in Space, bad third season Lost in Space, with the guy who plays Dr. Smith being the Pie Piper of Hamlin, who's going to lure all the little people out to, and, and, and kill them or something. It's, yeah. it's, it, was, it, was, it was really, um, it was really a, uh, a disappointment. And the things that made the show work were the special effects team. And the and the prop guys. I mean, they were the thing that was you know about the only thing that was worth watching the show for. The ca- the cast was. Um, There's a cute girl on it. There were two. Yeah. But there was. Um, but I mean the uh, they, uh, the 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 uh, the actors who were who were fine actors. I think they were portrayed kind of wooden. And I don't. And, and I you, think they. I think that's what was required of them. No, I don't. I don't agree with that because I look at Lost in Space and I look at. The, the early uh, uh, episodes of Guy Williams and June Lockhart, boy, they had a lot of family emotional emotion and believability. Oh, well, in, in I'm, I'm talking about Land of the Giants. I am, but I'm yeah. jumping back oh, to I'm Land sorry. of the Giants. I'm that's, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm saying here's what they did it right. Why are we doing it wrong five years later? You're supposed to learn. You're supposed to well, grow. I guess my my answer, and this is not without this is this is completely without research, but I'm assuming simply because it was successful on the other show. I mean. You know, they that that show went on for three years, right? So that's that's not considered a really big success. Five years was considered a success. Three yeah, years is yeah, being canceled. That's true. That's true. Well, here's the thing. In in in, in that respect, then I guess the only Irwin Allen TV series that would be considered a success, having gotten five seasons out of it, would be Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. I think Voyage was four. Was it only four? I think. I mean, I think it was enough there to run reruns and stuff. And Lost in Space was enough to run reruns, but. It was kind of rare to see, I mean, where I lived, it was kind of rare to see Land of the Giant reruns because they had, like, one season. Well, that's just it. I'd never seen Land of the Giants until 
2017. And only wow. be, yeah, only because I had no real interest in it because it just it, something about it just rang untrue to me. Yeah. But it started popping up uh, once a week on MeTV, so I just had the DVR grab a few episodes. And so I watched a couple, and from the first one I watched, I was, I, and all these have been from the second season. Uh, I, all of them, all the ones I've seen have been second season, and all of them to a to a one have su-ha-upped. Yeah, I mean I they're it. terrible. I believe it. And the thing is, I mean, I don't know why. I keep I keep kind of going back to it mainly mainly because I keep hoping that they'll cycle through and actually show the first few episodes, which. A friend, you know, John Hudson, who occasionally podcasts with me, has said flat out, he says, you know, honestly, try, you know, you try to see some of the first couple of few episodes and they're worth seeing. But after that, you're, it's just what you said. There's this quick descent. And uh, man, I'm looking, I'm looking at second season Land of the Giant stuff and just holding my head in my hands and going, oh my God, this thing, this hour long show has about 15 minutes of story. Yeah. And it was driving me insane. Yeah, it's not it's not good. It's a, and it's a shame too because there are a lot of things about it that are visually worth taking in. Everybody should at least see some of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and then but then when you know it, I mean, there's the giant camera. They got to get the giant battery. There's the there's the animals that they run across. There's the. The, the 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 cat the dog the snake the... yeah they they never run across an animal that doesn't hate them I'm telling you right now well I mean I guess maybe there's some sort of like territoriality going on but the the giant um, praying mantis I mean the, and a lot of these shots are just really brief it isn't like there's a whole episode yeah. um, but then they're like in test tubes they're being put in test tubes they're being taped to the ground they're being cloned they're being scientists. yeah, yeah. and I and I look at it and I go no. I mean, I wouldn't mind seeing like a strung together hour long show or two hours of all the best special effects from the show or something. Yeah. With maybe even with a narrator so you could at least just, you know. Kind of appreciate what was accomplished there. If I'm, I might be missing, I know that on some of the Irwin Allen stuff, the guys that had done some of the motion, the serial stuff worked on special effects. Was it Lidecker or something like that? The, yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure. They, well, the, yeah, the Lidecker brothers, um, they did, they worked on the, the the Republic serials. I'm not sure if they worked on the any of the Irwin Allen stuff. They may have. I just I, I'm not I'm, I'm aware. I'm not 100 percent positive. I've always thought that. Maybe I'm wrong, but I mean, if you look at like the the special effects in uh, Lost in Space, especially 
the spaceship crash landing on the planet's surface and then in space and then the Cyclops in episode three and then the little um, chariot tractor car goes across the ocean when it's frozen and then it's going to come back when it's not frozen anymore and just on and on. A lot of the special effects remind me of guys that decide to use as much of actual nature as they can in order to make the effect look real, like Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. They had the giant tank out there in, I don't know if it's Burbank or wherever it was, but a giant water tank where they put the miniatures in and you could literally have a camera crew in there with no problem and a guy in a monster suit. And it and the water did a lot of the work of slowing things down, so they looked like there was weight and presence to it. Yeah. And the and those guys and I, I that's why I'm pretty certain it's the same guys because because you know those serials didn't have a great budget. And while Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea had an okay budget because a lot of that stuff was borrowed from the film, uh, the set the sets and the set the main set especially. Um, they still had enough money to where they would put in uh, some labor with special effects almost every week. Yeah. Uh, and 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 it, but it was that realistic, what, what for lack of a better term, you know, let's use nature to help us do our job. Let's string Rocket Man, the Rocket Man dummy, between two mountains and slide him down. You know, yeah. why why are we going to cut a guy out in, in in matting and then do that when it looks so bad? When you can just you know physically do it. And um, there was a whole bunch of stuff like that. There was a bunch of stuff like that on Land of the Giants. They filmed the miniatures of the spaceships on, let's say, Lost in Space beautifully. They'd be going through space, and they'd come across a giant derelict spaceship, and they'd, they'd, they'd fly around. And I was always very impressed with the, with the effects on the show. Later, they got the pod on Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. They got the flying sub. Yeah. Um, you know, on Land of the Giants and Time Tunnel, they didn't have time to do it because they got canceled. So, you know, <laughs> they didn't come up with a new, new all of a sudden, another little spaceship, all of a sudden, hey, there's a whole other giant chunk of machinery that we kept hid. Behind um, this door over here that didn't exist earlier, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, but I think that, um, I think that there, you know, I will always, you know, Irwin Allen will always put a smile on my face. Now, when we get to his films, his two great films, Signed Adventure, and especially, really, my favorite film that he ever did by a long shot, which was Towering Inferno, you really have a guy who is, he's firing on all cylinders. Somehow he found his element. And uh, I, I, I think that, I think while I love Signed Adventure, I really love Towering Inferno. I think it's one of my all-time favorite films. And with a great cast and everybody's got the, the, the writing was good, the directing was good, the idea behind it was good, the, and, 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 it, and it was intense. Um, and then they started going downhill again. He made two good, two good, two really good movies, and then all of a sudden, I don't remember what the next one was, but there was one of them there. What was it called? The day the world ended, or something like that. Where well, Paul, yeah, Paul near Newman's, the, Paul near the end of the seventies. Yeah, yeah, he, he, yeah. He did the swarm, and then he did that one with Paul Newman trying to go across a bridge, a little tiny log or something, falling across a ravine which has got lava flowing through it. And that scene lasted for like forty-five minutes or something. If it wasn't, it felt like it. I'll tell you what. I know Paul Newman had already signed the contract, but and, and, and you know, in Towering Inferno, you do, and you're like, okay, cool. But you you watch watch this film and you can see a man that got screwed, <laughs> and you can see it with Michael Caine in in the Swarm, and you can see it with Michael Caine in Beyond the Poseidon Adventure. 
Oh, I forgot about that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it stunk, you know. And you had a, a, a fairly decent cast that was completely misused. Well, if memory serves, Irwin Allen eventually moved back into television doing these disaster films for television he instead did some of, it, of them. Yeah. He, he kind of mixed up. There was a Swiss Family Robinson TV show. Um, there was uh, some other shows he did. He did The Amazing World of Captain Nemo. But that was around... I want to say it was around 76. Oh, okay. So he was still kind of moving back and forth between television and movies and, and theatrical films. But, uh, you know, after that, he, he, his star faded, uh, you know, again. And, and he never recovered from it. Um, I still think there's a world out there with somebody. I don't know whether the new show that Netflix is doing of Lost in Space will be worth anything. I hope it is. I got my fingers crossed. But I would say this, that eventually, if it's not this decade, it might be ten decades down the road, somebody's going to turn around and take some of those properties, dust them off, and give us a good entertaining idea. Because I mean, think, if you think about it, I mean, nowadays they can make a television show with decent writing about almost any subject, no matter how ludicrous. True. And True. I think that, that these aren't even ludicrous subjects they're just um, they just they weren't managed very well ultimately by the people that had them and uh, you know you get some serious writers on the show and you could, I, w- I would kill to see a voyage to the bottom of the sea show with good intense actors and actresses and and, uh, and, and, and and good writing you can have a lot of fun with science fiction underwater you know yeah, it's very true. I mean, here's the thing. I, I, I'd forgotten until you just mentioned it that they're doing this uh, new version of Lost in Space. Yeah. And uh, like I say, I'm, I've, I've never seen... I've, I've seen the original pilot for Lost in Space. That is the extent of any of the Lost in Space stuff I've ever seen in my life. I've never... All the little clips and pieces that I've ever seen from the, from the show have always been from those color seasons... And everything has always been played up for comedy or silliness and this, that, and the other. So it's certainly not something that I've ever it's wanted. It's a disaster. It's yes, a, I've, not, I've not wanted to see it. I've not cared. Now, I understand that Lost in Space has a humongous fan base. And it's always going to be, and it always seems to be the same types of people, which are people who saw the show when they were kids. Yeah. When it was specifically aimed at kids. Which, okay, I get it. I, I understand that. It's the same reason I get a kick out of watching something like... Um, uh, the speed buggy show from the 70s. It's like, I saw it when I was a kid. Is it any good now? Eh, it's in the eye of the beholder. You know, it really kind of depends on when you saw it yourself and how old you were. But the idea that that would be the one, it's natural that Lost in Space would be the one show that if somebody was going to try to resurrect some of those properties, the Irwin Allen properties, that would be the one, right? Uh, I would say Voyage to me is just as... No, no, no. That, but, but see, that's just it. Voyage isn't as well remembered these days. Uh, yeah, I know. Lost in Space still has the the pinnacle on memory, probably because of the stupidity of the show, though. That's the tragedy probably, of it. Probably, probably. I mean, yeah. a lot of people, you go back and you tell them, look, if you watch those first 10 to 15 episodes of the show, it's a pretty straightforward drama. And I recommend that to you. Well, Rodney, I, 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 I would like I would like to because, like I say, I saw the original pilot, the one that did not have the Doctor. Uh, Doctor Smith wasn't in it, right? And I liked and that. I thought that was a solid piece of television. I will say they pretty cleverly in, in inserted him into the film, but there is um, there is something really good, especially the, like the first five five to ten episodes that are really good, 
and then it slowly starts to descend a bit. And it's definitely somewhere in the middle of that, that season where you go, you know what, they're really starting to get corny. But having said that, there are episodes with, uh, with, with good, solid human drama, family drama. I consider that the adults would have watched this show just as well as the kids. And I think when the show got sillier, the only adults that held on that were the ones that didn't mind the camp. But I, yeah. I think you lost your adult audience. And the kids were, you know, it was, not, it was the best game on, in town that night. But if you look at um, uh, the first half of the first season, or uh, I, I think I think it's I think it's good quality television. It's good, and, and it makes me sad. I mean, because you know somebody decided somebody got lazy and said we're going to go this camp this this camp thing's taking off. Let's go that direction. And I, I'd like and, to, and I guess that I'd like is to smack it, yeah. whoever that was. If I could jump in and you know, <laughs> oh, Mark, let's go back in time and smack the guy who invented the. The crappy voyage to the bottom of the sea and lost the space episodes. Well, I'd get in the car, I'd get out of that steaming uh, uh, car, uh, out of that DeLorean, I'd smack that guy right in the mouth. <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, it's pretty obvious what what the uh, what the the impetus for the whole thing was, which of course the success of the the incredibly silly and high camp Batman TV series. Yeah. And of course, it's okay. I I, I know there's a lot of love. In a, for a lot in a, in a lot of people's hearts for the 60s Batman TV show mm-hmm. and I have finally it took me years and years and years to get to the point where I'm willing to watch the Batman TV series from the 60s and enjoy it for what it is mm. but it took a long long time simply because to me Batman's not a silly silly thing no. and it, it can be you can play it for laughs there's some really neat stuff that has treated Batman in that way and you can get some good laughs out of it but what that says to me is that other than the, the two serials, the Batman serial in, I think, 43 and the Batman and Robin serial, I think, the very next year, or maybe a couple of years later, I can't remember now. But, and you know, that was the, those two serials treated Batman seriously. Within the confines of what a, uh, a, a serial was, Batman and Batman and Robin were serious serials. They were crime stories. But the very next time you get Batman on screen... It's as if they've decided that this cannot be treated in a serious manner. They did. They were originally yeah. going to. They were originally talking about doing it as a drama, and then one of the heads walked in and said, "There's no way you can do this serious. Make it a comedy." That's that's where the yeah. tragedy strikes. And you know, I'm sorry. You know what? I watched those shows. I even went out and bought the Blu-ray set recently. I, will I, watch I, I have the Blu-ray. I have the Blu-ray set, and I, like I say, I've gotten to where I can enjoy them. I will watch but... it. I will watch it for the color. I will watch it for the the camera angles. I will watch it for the guest watching stars. Adam. Yeah, the guest stars. I will watch it for Adam West acting like something is so serious and, and, and giving delivering such straight almost Charlton Heston lines to ridiculous situations and I and I've grown to appreciate him. Yeah. But I, I think that the Batman T V series hurt superhero films for decades. Oh I agree. I completely agree. And I think that's why it hurt the Doc Savage movie. It, it hurt, hurt the Doc Savage and, movie and ten even, years later. Yeah. Even even when you watch uh, the Christopher Reeve Superman, that was finally for me the turning point where we got a superhero film, even though it had some heavy comedy with uh, Ned Beatty and Gene Hackman, who I actually liked those scenes, there was still enough drama going around it and a, and a, and a, and a love story and all that kind of stuff that made that film the turning point with me of the, of the and got the bad taste out of my mouth of the Batman TV series. Well, I, remember, I, I don't know, I guess people who didn't live through it are unaware, but at the time, 
the Superman movies, the the, super, the first Superman movie was a real heavy lift to get the the public to understand that this is a serious movie. This is not some campy, stupid little cartoon thing. We're trying to we're doing a serious superhero story. Yeah. And and I think that it is it was the hangover from you know ten year ten plus years before of the campy Batman, which kind of colored the the public's view of what these characters could be visually in movies or television and it, it was a it was a really heavy lift so there was the the success of that first superman movie really changed a lot of things it didn't just change your mind or give you a vision of it it had to like shift a whole culture's way of looking at this stuff yeah yeah and i and and, and like i said you know i'll look at the show I'll look at the great guest cast. I'll look at the design. I love the, the vehicles. I love the boat and the helicopter, especially the Batmobile. Yeah. I love um, the backgrounds. Uh, and, I, and I will say I've always, there's never been a time I ever disliked uh, some of their very lead villains. Um, uh, with uh, Frank Gorshin as the Riddler, it's truly uh, a, an inspired performance. I, I still think it's Batman's best villain in terms of that show. Yeah. I think Cesar Romero's pretty great. I mean, if you really saw a person like that in real life and knew they had evil intent, that'd scare the hell out of you. But um, I liked all three cat women. The cat women, yeah. I mean, it was all, it was all pretty good. Um, and, and so, you know, there is things to watching it, but I still, I still stand by my fact that it was damaging to superheroes. Now, there's a lot of people, and it's a large number of people that are going to disagree with disagree with it well i'm going to do a little pushback and say i don't agree with your disagreement so um you know because i've heard it too many times where people go on and praise it for hours and i'm like really do you realize what what was going on in comic books at the time some of the great stuff that was going on in comic books that nobody bothered to look at both dc and marvel were, were doing some great stuff and this show completely threw all that out and said now we're going to do this because we have no belief in it and well, they, they turned it into a nothing but a clown show, and that's... Clown show. Now, I will say this. I really love, and I do know that the writing is a little standard and, and not necessarily that great, but at the same time, when they did the Green Hornet television show, I was completely happy because it was a drama, and somebody even said, you can't do it, but then the next year, I, I'm pretty certain it was completely the same company that did the Batman show. Oh, yeah, it was, it was. Yeah. It was completely it, it, the same company. Remember, it grew out of the, the Batman TV yeah, show. And, yeah, and, and I, I looked at it, and I went, I, I love this, I love this show. Uh, it's not perfect today. I watch it. I'll see very standard plot stories, and you know, yeah. I mean, there's one episode with a laser, and they're threatening to burn a painting and feed it to the laser. It's like, well, you could do that with a pack of matches. You don't need some super killer laser. Oh my God, this super masterpiece painting that's worth thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and you guys are going to feed it to the laser. Hey, an angry kid with a box of matches could do the same thing, you know. But but the intensity of the show, the the the, the, the look of the two lead heroes, um, the way that they were together, the car, the, uh, the, the, the his neat little apartment, and, and everything that, that that they ride out of, the way the car flipped over, yeah. and and some of the plots, and there was some there was some episodes that got, got were were pretty fun to watch. Uh, I, I never hated an episode of the show. I'm glad to say there was not, none of them that I just went, boy, that stunk. Well, here's my question: When the hell are we going to get the damn Green Hornet TV series? I mean, it was only a I season. Think there's way too many. I think I don't know what the what the fingers in the in the pot 
that are that are griping that they get their chunk. I don't. I, 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 th- I have heard one or two things, but because I, it could be, be complete hearsay, and I won't say what I have heard okay. because I could be wrong, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna slur anybody. But I want to see Van Williams and Bruce Lee in a in a nice crisp format driving around in that car with that great j- jazz score. Uh, the, the 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 music the incidental music was great yeah and then that theme was a fantastic riff off of flight of the bumblebee um I, I never get tired of hearing that theme and i love that logo at the beginning of the show too so i don't know you know it's kind of funny because this episode really is a big stream of consciousness thing we started off with talking about <laughs> music in the room and we immediately diverted towards Irwin out i guess what whatever was in our heads kind of rose to the surface and that's quite all right that's exactly what this should be yeah we, we should call this a stream of consciousness episode as we as we drive down the road a, a, a trip inside mark maddox's trip. mind I, yours too well yeah a little bit that's true yeah i know it's, there's a bit of a vacuum in there but yeah. oh how sweet <laughs> funny yes how so funny you are sir so yeah but i mean um you know, I I, 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 I I am hoping for that soon. I absolutely will jump on that Green Hornet box. Oh, that would be great, yeah. That's my favorite toy as a kid was the Corgi Green Hornet. Um, well, at least from the from the mid-60s, the Corgi, Corgi Green Hornet toy that they produced the car was just magnificent. And then uh, and I also like stuff like Major Matt Mason when I came moved back to the States. I thought that was a pretty amazing toy as well, all the stuff that goes along with it. But... Um, yeah, I mean, there's things in Batman. I mean, it's a it's 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 a great um, it's a great visual treat. The Batman show. Yeah, it is. It is for throw out the fact that you're irritated. Now, I still do watch the Batman the movie version that they did. I guess it was in between seasons or something, and they needed more Batman, so they did a they did yeah. a theatrical. That one I will watch. Because you only beat me over the head with the silliness for an hour and a half, and there, and pretty much everything is featured in it, and you get all the main villains. So I have to give that a, 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 a thumbs up, even with the camp and the silliness, because it's just this one shot thing. Um, the the thing is, is that as an artist and a guy who illustrates uh, magazine covers about film and television. Uh, that show could be just a goldmine for people that love to love to do that kind of illustration. I certainly wouldn't mind tackling. Uh, uh, I wouldn't mind tackling uh, some of the characters from the show on a magazine cover or something. Yeah, well, it was of kind of weird. Actually, we had a we were supposed to do just before the Blu-rays got released for a magazine I was working for. We were supposed to do an issue with a Batman cover and I was pretty excited about it from a visual standpoint I thought it was pretty great well for some reason Adam West's publicist or whoever worked with him as the guy that got him uh, kept kept putting us off and, and uh, we felt that uh, we didn't understand why we don't believe it was Adam West who is now gone now but at, at, at the time you know, he was fine and uh, my publisher was calling me up and going I don't understand why we're being blocked from talking to Adam West about something that he would certainly want to discuss with us, the, the release of his show on Blu-ray. Of course. And it, it never happened. So the, so the cover I was going to, I even, it even, uh, a sample cover that I had started got published in, uh, I think it was in a distribution magazine for, for all these different magazines, and then it never saw the light of day, so...
Yeah, what is it? Well, you've talked about how you went through a little phase there where air, airport, uh, which was a 1970 film, am I wrong? I want to say it is 70. Airport was like your favorite film there for a little while, right after you initially saw it. Yeah. And I'm just curious, um, Dean Martin, what did, have you, have you, are you, were you then, or are you still a big Dean Martin fan? Um, I don't dislike Dean Martin at all, and I, I enjoy the singing and all that stuff. No, it was just that film got to me. I mean, it was it was the overall package of of, of the characters and everything. I mean, uh, the character was even in his sliminess and being a prick to um, Jacqueline Bassett. No, he wasn't a prick to her. Oh. He was nice to her. Okay. Uh, even though he was he was fooling around with her, uh, he was a prick to Bert, Bert Lancaster and him really didn't like each other and he was in the film was married to Burt Lancaster's sister the lady who played uh, Perry Mason's assistant her name escapes me okay or her helper on uh, on on the Perry Mason show it's the, the, the kind of the attitude of the film was the wife knows that he fools around but that he'll always come home well he's there with the stewardess this younger stewardess who he's having an affair with played by Jacqueline Bissett, and I'm, or Bissett is actually pronounced. And I gotta admit, I mean, I was only like 12 years old, but I like fell in love with this woman in the movie theater. I mean, I got so worried about her. She's a stewardess, she's beautiful, and now we find out that she's pregnant. Dean Martin has made her pregnant, and now she's not sure what she wants to do. And, you know, the normal thing for a guy to say or do would be like, look, we gotta get this taken care of. Yeah. You can't have a baby of mine, all that kind of stuff. But his character at that moment becomes kind of noble and says, look, you know, I'm going to go along with whatever you decide. And that I'm like, you know what, through a movie where a guy's being a, a prick pretty much through the whole thing, he's actually uh, better in this respect. But then with the tragedy in the film, when the guy who wants to blow up the plane so he can collect insurance for his wife, he's a demolition expert played by Van Heflin, when he blows up the, uh, he, he gets chased in back into the back men's washroom and blows it up. And she, and, and Jacqueline Bissett is pounding on the door and the bomb goes off and it slams, she, her in the door, the door shoves her and slams her to the ground. And there's, and there's stuff flying through the air and glass and chunks of stuff from the plane and people's clothes and, or not clothes, but people's just personal effects and it's all going out. And then the next time you see her, her face is all got purple spots on it. And the eye is, you know, she's been, it looks like she's got a big chunk of glass or metal or something. The other way they describe it, there's a doctor on the plane. And I just remember being so in, uh, not horrified. That's too, that's too strong. That's for horrified is for horror, but just so damn upset about it because this, this, the beautiful creature and the sweet woman has all of a sudden been mangled. Yeah, you know by this guy who's who's crazy. You know Dean Martin's worried about her and all this stuff. And when they leave the plane, he's standing there holding her hand, and his wife is lo- looking at him getting off the plane with her, and she just knows like oh, my marriage is over. You know because he's going to take her to the hospital and try to see if, do what he can to help with getting her back on her feet and have the baby the baby might be fine just they left it open i thought it was kind of 
kind of nervy for back then. Anyway, it was nervy enough to where, as a kid, you didn't even need the answer. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the movie, I think, if I remember... Well, that's, that's back when movies were willing to actually leave leave you with an ending that didn't sew everything up. Yeah. yeah, and it was still old Hollywood. We'd still see a little bit more of that with some of the other disaster films. Uh, kind of like Grand Hotel kind of stuff from the 30s. But this time you throw in a disaster with it. And I just thought that the movie's magnificent. And I've watched it. I hadn't watched it for years. I mean, I finally had, had, had seen it a lot. And other films came and went. We moved into the quote-unquote modern age of films with modern special effects. And I always had a thing where like movies were like lily pads where you'd have a favorite one until another great one came along. Okay, and yeah. for me, I don't remember if there was really a contender in between that time for the best film other than possibly Towering Inferno and while Towering Inferno to me was a great movie and it has a lot of emotion in it I, I still think that it didn't beat out emotionally what I saw in airport but I still think overall Towering Inferno was just this giant opulent you know this time Grand Hotel but this time the hotel's on fire and, and, yeah. to, see, and to see Paul Newman and Steve McQueen in the film I didn't even know who they really were. I didn't pay much attention. I knew who Steve McQueen was because of The Great Escape. Right. But I'd never seen Paul Newman. He looked like a movie. He looked like a movie star my parents would watch, and that didn't mean anything to me. He was an adult actor. You know, he wasn't a Guy Williams or a William Shatner or anything. He was. And uh, but then I watched the film and I thought he was fantastic in it. And I think Steve McQueen and everybody in the movie was fantastic and. Richard Chamberlain was excellent as the slimy guy that was trying to cut corners. And well, the reason I ask about Dean Martin is oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. You've gone you got like field. way, 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 way more. <laughs> which is, which is, which is, which is perfectly fine. <laughs> but the reason I asked about Dean Martin is just recently I finally watched a movie that I'd heard bad things about for years, huh. which is a late period 1970s uh, Dean Martin film called Mr. Rico. I remember the preview for that film when I was a kid. Well, so I, I kind of I wanted to see it because I like Dean Martin. I'm not like the I'm not like some super fan or anything like that. Oh, yeah. Uh, but I am impressed by Dean Martin ever since seeing him in Rio Bravo. Yeah, which I watched for the first time uh, less than four months ago. And wow, well, what did you think? I loved it. I mean, Rio Bravo is amazing. Yeah, I mean Howard Hawks is to me is one of the super great directors. I mean, we've got directors that are famous yeah. on, and like uh, Howard Hawks and John Ford. That's almost a stereotype to say that about directors, but for 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 uh, for action adventure rousing films, those two guys really knew how to direct. And Hawks is my uh, you know my hero. I mean, I loved one night on TCM hearing John Carpenter talk about how crazy he was about Howard Hawks. Oh God, yes, he and, is. Yeah. Well, given the fact that he did the uh, the remake of the thing, he knew he couldn't imitate Hawks, so he did he. He took a left turn and made his own kind of film, which I think is also brilliant. But the original version of the thing, which was supposed to be, you know, directed by Christian Nyby, but I still sort think of. that Hawks was on the set. Well, I heard, I heard something. I've, I've heard things back and forth. Over I've years, heard back yeah. and forth, but you can just tell the overall bubble of Howard Hawks is over that film. Oh yeah. Whether and I and I and I would say, it, it when I look at it, it's almost like looking at you know Steven Spielberg directing Poltergeist. You know, sort of, to, yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, you know, they had they had they had to give Toby Hooper the credit for some kind of whatever whatever thing they've got out there. Union but see, rules. But see, of, I've heard back and forth about that too. I don't believe I don't believe Toby Hooper directed that film. That man directed Chainsaw. That's a great film, but 
I, I, uh, I saw him do a little tiny bits and pieces here in a few films that were good, but that man couldn't have directed that. That movie had Steven Spielberg's warm and fuzzy family life personality, suburb personality all over it. There is no way you'd get me to believe that Toby Hooper directed more than 10 or 20% of that film. At most, I don't believe that for a second. That's like looking, that's like somebody that does a signature, a signature expert, you know? And it's like, you know whether, I mean, a, a real signature expert knows whether or not, you know, it, it's it's a person, the right person. Well, the, uh, well, as I was, uh, not, not, to, not to ratchet things back to Dean Martin again, <laughs> but, but the reason that I, I, I wondered if you'd ever seen Mr. Rico, because I, I, I'm trying to figure out, I need to, to do a little research and find out why Mr. Rico has such a, has such what I perceive to be as a bad reputation. Or because it's a solid, it's yeah. a solid little crime film, actually. Well, then maybe it is a good film. I mean, you got to realize there's somebody recently on um, Facebook is posting old reviews from cinema magazines. Oh yeah. And some of them that are really considered like by like somebody like you and me or the general horror film public that would go the that lean towards classics. And I mean, what I mean by classics, like. Anything from like the 1980s on back, not this, uh, you know, not just Universal's really, but I talk about stuff like all the way, all the way back, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the, every everything that we would and consider all, to but, be, but all the way up to it, all the way up. Yeah. I used to be, I used to do the cutoff was The Exorcist and everything back, and then later I, you know, I I moved it up more. But you know what I'm talking about, like movies that uh, are pretty good, like the Cinema Magazine gave the original Dr. Fives film out of four potential stars, it gave it one star. Which I'm sure at the time seemed the appropriate thing to give it. But, but yeah. most people were saying it was good. I mean, but there are people yeah. out there that that is not their kind of film. Of course. And But to me, really, I mean, I don't remember there was ever a time when somebody out there that I knew did not... I mean, they. A lot of people love those that movie. I actually love the second one too. Oh, yeah. I, I hate it when somebody goes, "Oh, the second one stinks," and it's like, "Oh, come on, that's crap." In some ways, the the murders are more inventive. Pound for pound, you analyze all those murders. The ones in the second one are much more inventive. What lovely music for a murder, or two, or three. Or nine. Who's this? Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to meet a dear friend. Nine killed you. Nine shall die. Your wife no fives. But you I will kill. But you can't, doctor. I am already dead. Here, how are we going to get him off this? You take his head, and I'll take his feet. Let's unscrew him. Dr. Vibes, who samples the finer things of life. In his own inimitable way. There boils of bats. Frogs? Oh, frogs, yes. And the curse of blood. Curse of hail in the bloody middle of nowhere. Are you ready? 
for a doctor. I like them both myself. I do too. And but the thing is, is that there were other films, and I can't—they're they're escaping me right now. That were getting one and two stars, and and movies that now that we now and a lot of people think stink, that got more than the ones that are now revered. You right. know what I mean? It's it's and they weren't just horror films. It was just it was other films as well. My thing is when you look at something like Mr. Rico, and I have not seen it. Okay. There was another one. It was, yeah, you might even be talking about the same film. There's a scene in it, you tell me, you did see the film all the way through. Mr. Rico, yes, of course. Was there a scene, like, in, in New York, and he's coming out of a, a, a one of the, like a, a, like, a courthouse or something, and somebody's got a, got a beat on him with a rifle? Yes, it's, it doesn't take place in New York, by the way. It takes place in uh, San Francisco. Okay, San Francisco. Uh, and... But yeah, you're right. That's Arizona, that's the yeah. movie. Then that was the one, and I wanted to go see it because I had just seen Airport a year or two earlier. I'm, if I'm not mistaken, was that rated R? Was Mr. Rico rated R? You know, I'll be honest, I don't remember. Did it seem like it when you watched the film? Did it look like a well? It's nudity I, I, or violence? I, well, see, that's or, just it. I don't there, I, I don't remember any nudity. There is some violence. I would think that at the time it might have been rated PG. But nowadays, if it were resubmitted with the the way they look at things now, just for adult themes and kind of the adult nature of what they're doing, it might get an R, but I don't know. Yeah, I remember wanting to see it. And, and I remember seeing this is not the same cup of tea of, 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 of airport. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think sometimes we have to make our own decisions about films. And I think sometimes films just get forgotten. I well, mean, yeah. You know, even though that movie was later in in Dean Martin's movie career, he had made a lot of good films. I mean, movies that he was really good in, and I and I think that he was a competent actor. I mean, yeah, you know, some, yes, he was. Some people don't like that transition. Well, you're a singer already. Now you're going to go over and be an actor, and it's like, well, you know what? Some people really can do both. Some people are comfortable in their own skin, and you know, it wasn't even that much earlier that he was sliding down the pole with all the the girls on his television show and for some people it's hard to separate that from him being in a drama you know and that's what I wonder if, if like I say the, the general perception I've always had is that that movie is looked down upon or, or thought of as a bad film and thing is I don't have you know like I say those are perceptions cemented at the time right and so I don't have that Two going in ahead on the route road construction so, so with, with, with not having that in my head as, as someone who's coming to it just fresh with nothing kind of preceding it, it's, it, to me, it just a solid little crime film about, uh, you know, a, a defense lawyer in, in San Francisco in the mid-70s. Yeah. And the circumstances around a couple of different crimes and, and somebody that he was able to get off because there was, fab, there was fabricated evidence and things of this nature. But it's a... It's a testament to... Watching it, it was another time when I was really happy that I saw this film instead of disregarding it. I've not been a big fan of every Dean Martin film I've ever seen. Right. But I always enjoy watching Dean Martin on screen. Yeah. Now, of course, I am so I am also a big fan of his music. I think I think he had a wonderful voice. Yeah. I think he uh, I think that uh, he had a, a a really clever way with phrasing. I think he knew. I think he knew his job. Let me yeah, put it that way. Yeah. And so, when I think about how the general perception of that movie might have pushed me away from seeing it, and I think it's a, I don't think it's, I don't think Mr. Rico's a great film, but I think, damn, it's a damn solid film. I also think that I'm looking back at a time 
in a style of movie making that I just consider to be more meaty and more meaningful because of how they made movies at the time. Yeah. It's a solid, well-plotted, well-put-together, carefully constructed story that I enjoy watching play out. And things that are played dead seriously in Mr. Rico, I think if they were attempted now in movies, the filmmakers would overplay certain aspects of it and make it stupid. For instance, there's a sequence in Mr. Rico where his, uh, his car has been, uh, has been damaged, and so he's having to drive around a rental car. And it's a red Mustang. And unfortunately, it's one of those ugly Mustang designs from the mid-70s. So don't, right. get, exci- don't get excited. It doesn't look great. It's a, a shitty Mustang from the late 70s, mid, mid to late 70s. But at one point, the cops are following him because they think that he's going to be meeting someone that they're actually trying to find. He knows this and is attempting to... Um, and is att- and is, uh, so he ducks... While he, he kind of tries to get away from the cops on the streets and ducks into a car painting shop and has them do the quickest job they can of painting this red Mustang bright yellow, but he doesn't wait around long enough for it to dry or anything like that because he's just wanting to, to make it harder for them to spot his car in traffic. Right. And the way it's done in the film is the guys the guys doing the painting are like, this is not the best way to do this. This is not a good idea. And it, and they're and they're having to do it in a sloppy fashion. Yeah. And would, so there's like yellow paint like getting on the on the wheels and things like this. I, I already know where you're going to go with it. You're saying that they're, they, if it had been done nowadays, they'd run it through the Steven Spielberg comedy filter. Precisely. Similar, similar to Tom Cruise being put into that car in Minority Report. I mean, in a way. I mean, like, yeah. like there would be funny and there would be paint dripping and everybody would be getting a chuckle. You, you know, one thing I really don't like about modern films, it's an aspect of not all of them, uh, and I think some people are really getting away from it, but there was always this thing from about the time of, I don't know, like maybe Star Wars on, where you had to have moments that were almost like all of a sudden you're thrust into a Blondie and Dagwood comedy, but then they pull it back enough to where the overall movie still considered a drama. Case in point, the little radio control car that's trying to kill Clint Eastwood and his partner in the Deadpool. Oh, I mean, yeah. It's like, it's that is like, a horrible sequence. It's yeah. all, but I remember when the movie came out, people liked it, but I think now it doesn't play very well. The thing is, is that what was great about 70s movies is that there was very little... They did not sit there and try to look at some light and funny moment like they pulled it from the 1940s. They really were that you you uh, that that everything going on is pretty darn serious. Stop and miles. you know what? In real life, it would be if yeah. Stopped traffic. If this was actually happening at this point, it would be considered dead dog serious. I mean, you got the cops following you. I don't know the whole plot of the film, but there there is a uh, there is a now a a syringe that seems to be around so many films that even if they're considered really serious, right in the middle of it, you inject some some Spielbergian or or Star Wars or or comic book or whatever in, into something that has nothing to do with that kind of universe. It could be a it could be a, 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 a drama uh, that is um, about lawyers, and there'll still be this kind of part that. It doesn't fit. It, it doesn't fit. And I'm, I'm tired it's, of it's, it's a to, it's a tonal. It's a lack of desire to maintain a tone, or the fear that if you don't give, and this is something that happens in horror movies for a reason. But it's almost as if the the need to let the to let the audiences relax, yeah. so that you can slowly build again. 
yeah. is now being taken out of the horror the horror uh, realm and kind of placed into almost everything where even a I mean don't get me wrong a, a, a good a good chuckle line in a, in a in a drama is a good idea because guess what those things happen all the time in every conversation you're ever gonna have right right but what you're talking about is a section of a film that is a tonal shift away from what the movie is attempting to accomplish and they do that because they want to make sure they cover all aspects of their audience that that somehow everybody ultimately is entertained right I'm tired of movies that, that a, a large majority of films that do that nowadays and I miss the early 1970s the late 1960s and early 1970s movies that had the gumption and the grit to maintain their R-rated title or to maintain their adult nature. Well, they worked hard at that point to kind of earn the right to be able to do those kind of films, and so they wanted to revel in it. But we've got a lot of... Stop and go traffic. We've got a lot of great films from that time period because of it. I yeah. mean, I'm even... I mean, let, 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 let case in point, here's humor in a film where the movie is still very, very grainy and gritty and drama-like, is the scene in The Exorcist... Where, um, oh, oh God, Lee J. Cobb is asking for an autograph for his daughter, and the and the uh, Ellen Burstyn says, "Well, what's your daughter's name? I'll make it out to you." And he goes, "I, I lied. It's for me." Now, not only is it funny, it's very sweet. It's an endearing moment in the film. Yeah. Because a film fan has been caught. You know, and she doesn't mind. I mean, she's got her own problems. We know what's going on upstairs in that house. Yeah. Uh, but, 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 the, but, I mean, first off, I think it's one of the greatest acted films almost ever by everybody in it. But I think that that, to me, is a moment where there is humor in a film, but it's to show a tender side, not only between him, but her not being mad when she finds out that it's, it's just a ruse so that he can have an autograph. Right. And uh, after that, you know, I mean, the rest of the film, I mean, I'm trying to remember humor in the movie. I mean, uh, other than just one or two few things, you know, where he calls the guy father paranoia, and even that's not that funny. It's, no, it's, no, but, the, but that's perfectly in keeping with the, the, the tone of the film. And also, there are some, some, some humorous things said, but they're between, like, mother and daughter early in the film that are little things that a mother and a daughter would say. They felt like natural dialogue. Oh, yeah, 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 you know? yeah, 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 yeah. But, I mean... They're not, yeah. they're, not, they're not meant to make us laugh. They're, they're meant to be funny within the scene between the characters for yeah. us to... Exi- for us to see that side, that loving side of those two people's relationship with each other. Yeah, and and the only other humor that's in the film for for anybody who's saying it in the film isn't even funny. Like when the director's insulting her 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 help, you know, yeah. alluding to the fact that they might be Nazis, or escape Nazis, or something like that. Right. And it's not even funny. I mean, it's it's horrifying. And the guy, you know, who knows? Maybe maybe the guy thinks it's true or whatever, but. There, I, I, I miss that, and nowadays somebody would have a whole huge thing. And, and I'll admit, in the 80s, it was pretty cool. Poltergeist was great. The two, the dad, the two dads fighting with the remotes over who's gonna, whose TV sets are gonna be on the uh, children's show or gonna be on the football game, you know, because they're yeah. both on the same circuit. But it's an elevated bit of reality that kind of remind, that kind of tells you right up front that we're not 
really gonna play this like it's real life? Because if it was real life, you, you would it would be it would be really horror. I mean, that was a PG rated horror film. It kind of caused some controversy. Yeah, it shouldn't have been rated PG. Quite honestly, I think P, I think PG the PG thirteen is appropriate for that. I mean, yeah, this was pre PG. It was PG. Yeah, I know it was that one and Gremlins and and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom that really stirred the pot. Yeah, uh, which is funny because they're all Thanks, produced by Spielberg. Spielberg. Well. You know, he ends up doing that, and <laughs> and uh, and we get a PG thirteen uh, rating. Now that's being abused. A movie well, now, that's almost now every, G. Now every film has to be PG thirteen because every because they're afraid film. that nobody will take it seriously. But here's the thing: back to uh, like like the movie Airport. When that film came out, it was rated G. I mean, Airport, yeah. Well, Airport was rated. I guess G. that's because it. You know, there's no. They 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 took that middle route of. Knowing well, there's no reason to want to cut this down when it goes when it goes to television. Well, but what I'm saying is too is that the content is about, is is about adultery and divorce and uh, a, a, a a guy who's mentally unstable with a bomb on a on a passenger plane. Yeah, there's a lot of things in it now that would get it a PG-13. Um, and, and and I would say maybe uh, maybe a, a PG thirteen uh, would be more appropriate than a PG. I just don't know. What I'm saying is that the system of that is not a very concrete and solid, and it doesn't stick to its own rules. Oh no, um, and they never have. Case in point: Frank Langella's Dracula. Why in the hell is that movie rated R? There's no reason to rate that movie R. There's no nudity. The violence is very quick. Yes, there's a dead baby in one scene, but you can barely see it. It's backlit, and it's just on the ground. Apparently, the vampire girl got it. I didn't uh, remember. I didn't remember that that was rated R, but I guess it was. I know it was, and oh. I, I mean, and I was kind of ir- I, I mean, I watched the movie. I love that film. I mean, it's its own type of Dracula film, a romanticized version, but. But the only thing that even comes close to giving it an R rating, and even this is not a legitimate reason for giving it an R rating, is the dead daughter down in the mine when they're when they break down through there. She's going papa, and she starts talking to Laurence Olivier. Right. That's still not an R rated scene. I'm sorry, it's not an R rated scene. There's nothing in it. I mean, she spins around, she gets hit with the stake, but even that is like done in, uh, as a side view with no blood and then and, and it's like uh, there was no reason there was no reason well I remember when I was younger and this would be this would be in the this would still be in the uh, the 80s when I was younger an R rating actually kind of meant something to a large degree yeah but maybe but maybe I'm wrong if if, if, if if maybe I looked back at the Frank Langella Dracula from 79 and and maybe it wouldn't be what I would consider to be an R but back then like I say you knew why The Shining was rated R Oh, you know, yeah. Yeah, there was there there was language, there was nudity, there was an axe to the chest. Yeah, okay, of course, of course, an yes. R. And a man endangering a, uh, trying to kill a child. Yeah, precisely. With an there's axe. There, there's plenty of reasons why The Shining is rated R. But then I think back to, okay, um, I think back to other films that I, I get fuzzy on why they you know why they might have been rated what they were rated and then I get fuzzy on what they were actually rated. I actually have thought that certain films were R rated and then look back and they actually turned out to have been PG rated, especially a lot of films in the uh, in the 70s. Well, I'm going to say this and I've had people really look at me and they don't they don't disagree with me because but they think that if I they tell me I'm wrong that it's just going to start an argument or something. But I do remember at some point in time, some place, I saw that Diamonds Are Forever was rated R. I remember really? hearing that voice. And, and I think I'm going to tell you why. 
I think that maybe the idea that the two assassins were homosexuals and they held hands and stuff like that for some people was was I mean the whoever judged the film said well they, you know who's how are you going to explain that to your kids in the James Bond movie now I'm not saying that it stuck it might have even been a local thing that I saw for the R rating it might not have anything to do with the fact that they were alluding to the fact that the two assassins were gay for each other. I'll tell you right this. If there's an R-rated version of Diamonds Are Forever out there, it had damn well better include some new Jill St. John. Well, yeah. What I'm, what I'm saying is is that there is no there is no other cut. It was the people's perceptions. Remember that Midnight Cowboy was rated X. Yeah, and at the time you kind of understand why. I mean, but it, now you the, the idea was when they instituted that rating system was that X was for films that were deemed just for adults. And when you watch Midnight Cowboy with that in mind, you understand completely why. Because yeah. there's nothing in that film, A, that would, let's be honest, appeal to a teenager, really. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think also, too, the stigma for the general audience was that it was X-rated because there was vast amounts of nudity and sex sex going on in it. And I think that to give anything, that, that letter, that letter is so significant to just meaning... But it wasn't at the time. That's what I mean. Is the, Remember, X got adopted by the porn industry. Yeah, I mean, to me, it just—I mean, maybe it was that—that that gray area of of uh, of it. But I mean, to me, you watch that movie, and I swear, you you hardly have to edit any of it now. I mean, I mean, you've got Bob Balaban hitting on. I don't remember any of the. I don't. I don't remember the language level. So maybe, well, was, maybe you're it right. Was, yeah. It was about the fact. There's two scenes in there, I believe, if I remember correctly. There was Bob Balaban. Hitting on John Boyd or, or, or tricking him into going into value meeting and, and having him do something sexual with him. And he goes, I've got no money. Right. He took the money. He was going to take the money afterwards. And then he found out the guy. And I don't remember if he beat him up or what. And then there was the guy. Oh, he was always on road. I forget the actor's name. Hell, he was even on Dark Shadows a little bit. And, uh, in, in, you know, come and be with him in, in, in a, uh, you know, man on man type way. Yeah. And, uh, but in terms you, you, you can you can say sex, by the way. You can say sex. Oh, uh, well, anyway. <laughs> okay, okay, we can't. Um, and so my thing is, is that, I don't know, I mean, I think it's a, first of all, I think it's a great film. I, I never get tired of watching that movie, but I think that... Um, no, it's a hell of a film. There's films, yeah, but but, but we're, we're going, and now I'm going to bring it back finally, back to the Dean Martin film you're talking about. <laughs> okay. Is that I think some of those films are just overlooked now. And I think that that's They were overlooked I, then, yeah. and they went into obscurity. One that I remember that I've only seen one other time on television, and I saw it at the theater because two of my favorite people were in it, James Coburn and Michael Sarazen, was Harry in Your Pocket. Yes, good and, movie. And, yeah, yeah and I, I remember seeing it at the, at the theater and, uh, and then never heard of it again until I think I saw it one afternoon on... You know, like a Turner station, like Channel 17 out of Atlanta or something. But that was it. Talk, talking about those kind of like hidden little films from that period of time, you only recently saw The President's Analyst. You know, what's funny is that I was do, I was watching it just before the convention, and I got pulled away from watching the last 30 minutes, so I still have to go back. I'm going to start the thing over again. Yeah. But uh, there were some things that I really enjoyed. Uh, Coburn really does have a bizarre sense of humor. Uh, the way that he acts in the film when he first comes out of the president's office and he's sort of like, yeah, this is going to be a cinch. The president told me stuff about himself. 
Then he gets a phone call in the middle of the night because he's always got to be on call for the president. He comes back out. The next time he comes out the door, he is racked with a heavy <laughs> yeah. brow. And it's like, and, and the stuff the president told him was too much. I mean, I, I mean, whatever he laid on his head. And it started making him paranoid. So he starts getting these moments where he's like totally fine. Then all of a sudden, somebody will say something, get instantaneously paranoid, and then he'll snap into this like Mister. He'll, he'll snap into this London after midnight sort of smile, and he almost sort of looks at the camera like I think I'm losing it or something. Uh-huh. And it's pretty, it's pretty good. I mean, I'm enjoying it. Uh, our buddy Ted Haycraft at one time said it was almost a good third film in a way for a flint film, even though it isn't. There's a there's a connector there. Uh, and I thought, yeah, there's a, it's, it's a little bit similar, but it definitely isn't uh, that he's a spy. But I can still see it's still that 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 time in Coburn's life where those kind of films he was he was making those kind of films with bizarre humor in them. And uh, so, yeah, so a, far, what I saw was good, but I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. The thing that drove me nuts is that I saw uh, an. Uh, a review for that in Castle of Frankenstein back in like seventy seventy one. President's think analyst. President's analyst, and okay. and I have waited all these decades to see it, and finally <laughs> I'm getting a chance to see it, and it's sort of like it took a long time. I mean, it took a long, long time to finally see this thing. Stopped traffic. Yeah, I mean these recordings. We're not really yelling. Should we should we have nothing combative? I think we're too tired. Well, I think also too. There's there's really a lot of stuff we agree on. There is a lot. And the, the thing is, in the past, we've always just picked at each other over the the areas of disagreement. You know, the fifteen to twenty percent of things we disagree on. Well, there are some things you've said that I'm like, you're you you you're you're you're, you're nuts. I mean, you're oh well, what ab- do you mean? Like today? Oh come on, no, not today. Oh. Hey, what's this? Hey, what's this person? You're not supposed to be there. Stop and go traffic. Um. Just stuff we argue about on other podcasts. Oh, we argue about too many things, probably. But. Uh, some of the things we really agree on, like that whole business about Independence Day. Hate that fucking movie. I still like the special effects scenes, but I hate the film. I mean, it's uh, just, well, I, I, there we agree. I mean, the special effects were extraordinarily well done, but, fun, but I can't enjoy them because the damn movie's a the piece shell. Of shit. It's like it's like it's like. It's like finding out this hot woman that you want to be with got her bones sucked up by those marrow monsters from Island of Terror. <laughs> you know, it's not like there's really nothing there to work. There's nothing there to work with. I'm really looking now that to you do. need to keep in the podcast. I will keep in there. Well, I'll tell you this: I'm really looking forward to, to. I haven't gotten my hands on it yet, but I'm really looking forward to seeing Island of Terror on Blue right now. I can. I just bought wait. it. I got it. We watched it. I watched it twice the last couple of weeks. I assume that, that it was looks my first fantastic. Peter Cushing film. It's a really good tight copy. I mean, the source is about as good as I think they could get. Okay. Uh, good copy. Good picture. Uh, some shots of Peter Cushing. I mean, it's like I was trying to explain it to a friend who was. Uh, who was there with me watching the film? And I said, "You got to realize that um, you know people do screen grabs to do artwork and stuff." And I was like, "You can really walk up to the screen with a camera, seventy-nine inch TV set, and take like a picture about the size of a, a five by seven uh, oh. image, and just click a picture, and you've got and you've got material right there to do a portrait of Peter Cushing, even though his head on the screen was like one." little tiny portion of a bigger picture because the picture's so clear and uh, it kind of opens up opportunities for people doing film art I think in a lot of ways but um, yeah I mean it's 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 a film I've, I loved it was my first Peter Cushing film and I, it, it scared me so bad when I was a little kid that uh, when uh, I saw that in a couple of weeks another uh, Peter Cushing film was coming on uh, 
creature features in the afternoon. No, mm-hmm. science fiction theater. That when I found out it was coming on, I, I, I got nervous about watching it because I knew that was the guy that was in that really scary movie where he got his hand cut off with an axe. <laughs> I mean, it scared the crap out of me. But um, And Terrence Fisher did a good job. I don't think he had a lot of money to do it. but Yeah, I think they had very little money on that film because that was that was an independent production if memory serves yeah it was like planet pictures or something i can't remember but um and 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 then there's the uh night of the big heat or as they call it island of the burning damned or island of the burning doom depending on where you are yeah another good little film i like but but the monsters are pretty pretty bad in it i mean the ones in 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 the ones in island of terror terror are are respectable with the exception of the splitting sequence with the uh French onion soup or the uh, chicken noodle soup. You can really tell it is that. Uh, but <laughs> I the, can't wait to see this in high def. I haven't seen this movie in years. Yeah, it's really blatant. I mean, you can really, really tell that uh, the monsters are in a miniature and that they're smaller than they normally are and they've split. And hey, here's a, que- here's a here's a, a 60s science fiction question for you. Yeah. And we may have talked about this a little bit in the past, but I don't know. I can't remember. Have you? What, what are your feelings on Day of the Triffids? Oh, it's a very good movie. I think I think for me it kind of meanders a little bit. It does a little. I did a, I did a, got, I did a review on it on my old on the old show I used to do and uh, the old podcast. But I will tell you this, and I didn't finish it, so I feel kind of hang my head with shame. But I, I I know that there's a lot of people out there that do not like this film, and they mm, in some ways might have a valid reason for it. Day of the Triffids. Yeah. Okay. And that is that the book is so much better. Oh, the book is better. Oh, no, yeah. no, no, no argument at all right there. The book yeah. is better. Well, I started reading John, it. John Wyndham's novel is a bona fide classic. And, and you know what's funny is that almost the way it's written, it could almost be shot in present day with present day mores and standards. You know, people trying to grab, there's a blind blind old crusty nasty guy grabbing a young woman who can see and he's going to keep himself, you know, tied to her no matter what. And yeah. it, it's, 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 it's creepy. There's scenes of them getting up at a hotel and it almost reminds me a little bit of like Dawn of the Dead or something. They get up in the hotel and are real quiet so that they can, you know, live up there for a very short period of time uh, before they move on. And what I saw of it almost reminded me uh, of the movie um, 28 Days Later or something, some of the some of the imagery in it. But I didn't finish it, which I should have. And uh, I wish I had because what I had read up to that point I think I was about maybe 50%, no, not 50%, about 30, 20 or 30% through the book. And I was like, this is pretty darn good. I mean, if, if filmed as is, you might have had an even bigger hit. Now, the film itself... I, I don't know if some of the stuff would have made it through the censor board. To be right, honest. right. But the thing is, is that I watched the film and I go, it's a, it's a good movie. It's got some great imagery. The thing with the blind pilots is always the one thing that got to me. Yeah, the blind, the blind, the guy who's flying the airplane who's blind—it's like it's just a nightmare. That's a nightmare scenario. But no, I mean, I've, I've always—I'm really glad. I hate to say it this way, but it's true of a number of films. I'm—I'm I'm very glad I saw the film first and was able to enjoy it. Yeah, and then read the source material because. Yeah. Because if I had done it in reverse, I think I might feel the, what you're talking about there with Day of the Triffids, which is the Day of the Triffids novel is so good. Yeah. And the movie is such a, I mean, it is such a, just a splinter, a fragment, really, yeah. of its quality. 
but I still really like the film, and it's probably because I came to the source material after the fact. So it is a it is a good film. It's got some great stuff in it. It isn't as good as the book. The day of the Triffids, when terror reigned from the sky. the Triffids, when the Earth orbits into a nightmare, when the solid world of everyday reality disintegrates, and the whole population is driven by fear towards insanity. The day of the Triffids, when destruction closes in from every side. Starvation, fire, pestilence. Anyone caught in the middle of it doesn't stand a chance. I think we ought to get out of here and go on to Spain. How can you know it's any better there? I don't. It doesn't seem to have any central nervous system. Then how does it move? All plants move. And they don't usually pull themselves out of the ground and chase you. I've never been in one spot long enough to get caught. And now you are saddled with a family. It might have its points. The day of the Triffids, when law and order are overwhelmed in an avalanche of terror. James told me he wanted, my son told me he wanted to read The Shining. And, uh, and I said, watch the film first, because I think that if you watch, if you read the book first and you've got the topiary hedge animals attacking people yeah. and Mr. Halloran surviving and, and, and you've got, um, uh, what happens to the hotel? You've got the hotel blows up and it's like, you know, I, I will actually say this. I think that, I mean, I love the book, The Shining, but I do, I think in hindsight nowadays, a giant explosion at the end is almost, is almost it's even beyond a cliche now for oh, things. It's, yeah. it's the James yeah. Bond installation blowing up, and it was something that didn't need to be. Now maybe just oh Jack is like on a rampage and a and something gets knocked over and all of a sudden a fire starts and the building burns down. I could believe it, but just the whole boiler's going to blow up. It reminds me of uh, Ron Howard's dad in his scene in Ed Wood. I'll loan you the money. Right at the end. Yeah. yeah. It's got right at the end of the film, it's got to have a big explosion. And that's what I want. And it's like, yeah, you know, it's 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 true. I actually think Kubrick puts a mature and fascinating spin on it in a couple of different ways. One, the guy that you think is going to rescue everybody, don't make it. Two, that Stanley, Q, uh, that Stanley Kubrick, the Jack Nicholson, freezes to death in that neat shot. Yeah. And three, that the hotel kind of wins. Yeah, exactly. And you and, see and, him that, in the and, photo. That, and that it goes on, and that the hotel is going to go on being whatever it is, whatever it is, you know. Yeah. The horrifying thing about that is there's a bizarre history to the front of that hotel, the real hotel that they shot in uh, 
uh, what is it, Oregon? The ho- real hotel's in Oregon, right? It's not in Colorado. Yeah, now I can't remember where I it is. I think it's in yeah. Oregon, but it might be in Colorado. But here, here's the story. You know the story about Boris Sagal, right? Uh, to be honest, I can't remember. <laughs> well, yeah. Bor- you know Boris Sagal is the guy that directed one of my all-time favorite movies, The Omega Man, which oh, has to, I love I, that I film. I love The Omega Man as well. Yeah. I love it. It's kitschy now and all that kind of stuff, but it's still a great film. It may have been kitschy then, to be honest. It might have been kitschy then, too, yeah. But the thing, anyway, the thing is, Boris Sagal was getting ready to direct a... a, a massive television miniseries called World War Three. I think it had Rock Hudson and I thought it I can't remember, it's been a long time. In the eighties, in the mid eighties, I remember. In the eighties and where they were where they were their base of operations for some outdoor stuff they were gonna do was that hotel. They had their people there working out of that hotel and all that stuff. Well, Boris is out there scouting locations for this thing he's getting ready to shoot, and the helicopter lands in the uh, parking lot of that hotel, and he gets out and walks into the back helicopter blade and gets just torn to shreds and killed. Oh my God! Really? Yeah. Yeah, that's holy a true, shit. That's I did a not true know story. That. And his daughter, if I'm not mistaken. Is the wife the, the 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 pretty redhead wife off the TV show Married with Children? Al Bundy's wife, Katie Seagal. Yeah, that's Boris Seagal's or Seagal is that's that's his daughter. But anyway, he gets out, he gets out of the thing and, and he's looking at papers and stuff about what they've done and bow walks right into it, and it happens, you know, just that moment, you know. Uh, so in a way, it's kind of creepy because that hotel is about. You know, I mean, I know there's nothing really there, but it's still just weird, you know. Oh, yeah, granted, kind of I mean, makes know, it sad. Once you, you have that, once you have that kind of uh, that kind of uh, relationship in your mind with it, with you know some, that front of that the facade of that hotel. Yeah. But you know, I mean, I love the Omega Man. I love Kubrick's version of The Shining. I think it's a great film. Oh, I so think do the I, book's so do right, I, yeah. and I think that uh, you know, I think the book is a phenomenal book. But yeah, it's the, and, the, the and, film is its own animal, and I'm you know, I really think it is. I mean, I really do think that that, that Kubrick kind of threw out a lot of stuff and said, "I'm going to run down this thing of this dad losing it and the destruction of a family, and you know, a, uh, you know, a dad who's." Uh, uh, you know, uh, it, it's about it's about the horrific breakup of a family in a way. Yeah, uh, and I think that's what he was going for more. But yeah. Um, anyway, I forgot where I was going with all this stuff. But <laughs> I mean, I've been on a tear here for like twenty minutes. That's quite all right. That's kind. That's kind of a uh, I consider a good thing. Yeah, a good thing. Yeah. 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 Bring it. Bring us your mighty knowledge and opinion, oh Sir Maddox. Okay, that sounded like that sounded like the bullshit it was. I yeah. I apologize for that. Sorry. We should call this episode "Musings and Meanderings on the Road" or "On the Road, Not with Jack Kerouac." <laughs> on the road, off on the, the road. road, off the road, on the road with Maddox. Off and on the road with Maddox. How's that? If you come up with a better title between now and when I edit this, which will, by the way, be at least a month from now, let me know.
that's almost what it's like being trapped in a car for a couple of hours with me and Mark Maddox. It's not exactly what it's like. For that, you'd have to ask other people. But uh, it's pretty close. It's at least at least an audio version of what it seems like being trapped in a car and listening to us babble back and forth about everything from uh, Japanese monster movie soundtrack music, 60s television, Dean Martin, simply because I recently watched a Dean Martin film and, and really just want to talk about the Dean Martin film for no good reason whatsoever. Uh, for bonus points, he did get to hear us complain about uh, movie ratings and my usual rant about uh, how PG-13 as a rating has destroyed the movie industry, if you understand what I'm talking about. But hope you enjoyed it. Hope we didn't uh, ramble into areas that you don't give half a crap about, uh, which is very possible. I mean, come on. At any point where you're in a conversation where somebody's talking about Irwin Allen television series from the 1960s, you're probably limiting your audience pretty badly. But hope you enjoyed. Uh, We'll be back next month here on The Bloody Pit for uh, our annual holiday horror episode. Uh, That's me, John Hudson, and Troy coming back to talk about another odd holiday film. Um, Not sure exactly what they've got cooked up for me this year because I let them choose the holiday film each year. Uh, It was their idea, and so I think it's only right that they choose the film that we do. This allows us to uh, dive into some stuff that normally we wouldn't talk about here on the show. But uh, it's fun. And thank you once again for listening. If you have any comments, you can write to the podcast at thebloodypit at gmail.com. Be glad to hear from you. Also, the podcast has a Facebook page. You can find us over on the interwebs, the book of faces, uh, the Facebook page. You know what I'm talking about. It's, it's, It's that thing all the kids do, but I can't do all the things the kids do. Instagram, I, I can't even, I don't even... It doesn't matter. Thank you once again. This is Rod Barnett. We will talk to you again later. How lucky can one guy be? I kissed her and she kissed me. Like the fella once said, ain't that a kick in the head? The room was completely black I hugged her and she hugged back Like the sailor said, quote Ain't that a hole in the boat My head keeps spinning I go to sleep and keep grinning If this is just the beginning My life is gonna be Beautiful, I've sunshine enough to spread It's just like the fella said Tell me quick, ain't love a kick in the head Like the fella once said Ain't that a kick in the head Like the sailor said, quote, ain't that a hole in a boat? My head keeps spinning, 
I'd go to sleep and keep grinning If this is just the beginning My life is gonna be beautiful She's telling me we'll be wet She's picked out a king-size bed I couldn't feel any better or I'd be sick Tell me quick Oh, ain't love a kick 